0: The Lymphoma Voices podcast brings you a series of conversations around topics of interest for people affected by lymphoma, the fifth most common cancer in the UK. Hello, my name's Anne Hook and I work at Lymphoma Action and I'm delighted today to be joined by Bridget Wilkins who's a consultant hematopathologist, and she specializes in blood cancers. Hello Bridget. Hello Anne. First of all, can you tell us what
1: that job description explains really. Okay, the hematopathologist bit. What it refers to is that by training I'm a histopathologist, that is a tissue pathologist, one of those pathologists that spends their time looking down the microscope at tissues. But during the course of my career I've also done a lot of haematology and I've specialised in lymphomas and myeloid cancers, myeloma and other, so the blood cancers, the territory of haematology and um, that kind of interface between the two is typically referred to nowadays as hematopathology. Excellent, thank you. I wanted
0: to start by looking at when, why and how a biopsy is performed and I wonder
1: if you could explain to us what types of biopsy there are. Right, I'll, I'll have a go. Um, I'm going to try and do it sort of from simplest to most complicated. Many of patients will have had a cytology test where a very fine needle is um, inserted into an enlarged lymph node and some cells are actually sucked out as a liquid sample rather than a, a solid sample. That's um, cytology or sometimes referred to as fine needle aspirate cytology because it's the aspiration that sucks out a few cells and they're spread on a slide and sometimes that can be enough for a diagnosis and the thing about that is it's It's kind of quick and easy to do. The next type of sample is uh, a needle biopsy, where, again, usually um, if there's an enlarged lymph node, somewhere at a superficial site, I mean, just under the skin. So at sites like the lymph nodes in the neck or in the armpit, they can be sampled by a, a, a needle a little bit bigger than the fine needle aspirate needle, but still a very fine needle. And that generates narrow cores of tissue. I hope people won't be upset if I use my my analogy that I often refer to. It's like a, a mini apple corer. So you get a little cylinder of tissue out of the middle of the lymph node, but honestly, very tiny. It's only one or two millimeters in diameter, and it's usually about a centimeter to two centimeters length. And again, that can be enough tissue for diagnosis, and it also is quite easy to do. The remaining types of biopsy are a bit more substantial and often need the patient to have a general anaesthetic and that really is when you're removing a whole node or have to uh, access a lymph node that's really deep inside the body where you have to perform a surgical procedure just to gain access to the node and those are sometimes referred to as excisions or excision biopsy where you're removing the whole tissue and then sometimes it's not a lymph node that's being sampled even though the suspected diagnosis may be lymphoma but it might be at another body site like occasionally lymphomas arise in the stomach or the bowel or even in the lung or the bladder and those will be biopsied in the same way that samples are taken for other suspected cancers with a little some sometimes called an endoscopic biopsy where the patient swallows a tube to get a little sample through a kind of a little pair of scissors that put in those instruments and then just rarely there are lymphomas in organs like the salivary glands which actually they the salivary glands kind of lie in the tissue under your cheeks and you can't just excise those so and they're not easy to just to take um, a needle core from so they're sometimes sampled with what's called an incisional biopsy where a small sliver of tissue is taken taken and then the skin is sewn up on top so that's roughly the scope of the different types of samples that we take, plus one other sample which might not get thought about initially, and that is a bone marrow biopsy, which is often undertaken when we want to stage a lymphoma to find out how far it's spread. And that's taken through another sort of apple core type needle from the pelvic bones usually, so the bones around the hips.
0: And I'll come back to the staging because that's an interesting point that you make. But I just wondered if you could let us know how it's decided
1: what type of biopsy to give to somebody. It's a very good question and it ranges from the practical to the intensely clinically important. So from a practical point of view, if you have to get a patient put on a waiting list for a surgical procedure, it's going to take longer for them to get around to have their biopsy almost always than if they have it done in a way that doesn't need such a list. And because doing things like the fine needle aspirate cytology or a needle biopsy can be done as outpatient procedures, they're often much quicker to arrange. They're also uh, less intrusive. They remove less tissue, they're, they're less of a procedure for the patient to go through. So they're done for convenience and speed. That kind of sample might also be done if a patient was really unwell Too unwell to go through a a general anaesthetic. The doctors might decide, even though it wasn't the best type of biopsy really for the purposes wanted, that it was all the patient could manage. And then excision biopsies, removing the whole node or biopsy deep inside the body, will almost always require a general anaesthetic. And therefore, those get listed onto surgical lists and specialists who are used to doing those kind of procedures and do them when they've got the space available.
0: And is it fair to say that the less invasive biopsies produce less rich content for you to work on or is that not necessarily the case?
1: I think in general that's the case but the reason I'm hesitating is that it's often perfectly adequate to have the material from fine needle aspirate cytology or needle core biopsy as long as the procedure has gone well and has yielded plenty of The material it was aimed to collect. So for example I was saying the needle core biopsy they're usually about one and a half centimetres long and um, a millimetre or two in diameter. An ideal sample actually if you're going to use that kind of technique would be to collect not just one but maybe two, three or even four cores of that size which is perfectly possible. It's a tiny amount of tissue compared with the size of a lymph node that's even say one or two centimetres in diameter. The sample is generous, those more restricted, less invasive types of sampling are, are very good. But when you're doing sampling of that sort, there's very little left after you've done all the diagnostic tests and you haven't got something to come back to later. And it can be really helpful and useful to have something in reserve to come back to later. Can you have a diagnosis of lymphoma without a biopsy? Oh, that's a really brilliant question. So, um, There are a few lymphomas, which at the time of diagnosis, so they've spread already into the bloodstream. And the typical example of this would be chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL, and and maybe a mantle cell lymphoma, MCL, one or two others that are uh, less common than those two. But because they have lots of the lymphoma cells in the circulating blood, you can take a blood sample and actually have enough cells to test and make the diagnosis, but in almost all other circumstances you you do actually need some sort of biopsy procedure. The caveat I would say on that would be if you've got a diagnosis already and the patient has undergone treatment and then there's a suspicion that they might have had a relapse, you don't always need to re-biopsy to prove the relapse. Often the imaging studies and other chemistry that might be done in the blood is enough to know that the disease has come back or or not so that can be helpful. Some of your patients may have had PET scans um, during their follow-up and actually PET scanning has been a remarkable investigation added into the the things that are possible for lymphoma diagnosis and follow-up because a PET scan can exquisitely show that disease has recurred and completely avoid any need for biopsy. I wonder if we could move on to what happens
0: to biopsy
1: samples in order to get the diagnosis. Right, I'll try to do that. And and I hope this will, I hope this will be clear. It's really hard when you're very, very familiar with something. It's sometimes quite hard to explain it in ways that don't use lots of jargon and in ways that are actually clear to people who may not have thought about it before. So I apologise in advance. This is really bread and butter of the working environment that that I work in. So let's, I'm going to talk about the liquid samples, the things like blood samples and the fine needle aspirate samples first, and then I'll talk about the solid in a bit more detail. So liquid samples, it's really easy. It's either blood in a tube from which the lymphoma cells can be collected, and that might need some spinning in a centrifuge, or it might need some capture with uh, an immunological reagent that will just pull out the lymphoma cells, and they can be spread on a slide and looked at directly, or they might go through instruments such as you you might have heard of flow cytometry, where effectively the cells are characterized by their immune phenotype, and that can be done straight from blood cells. If you've got an aspirated cytology specimen from from a lymph node, You just shake the cells up in some fluid to make a a kind of an even suspension of cells and you can do just the same. You can spread it on a slide, stain it with very simple stains to look at under the microscope and send some of it to be uh, immunophenotyped and characterised by flow cytometry, even sent for genetic tests and things of that sort. The solid samples take a bit more handling. We're aiming in most cases to kind of preserve them forever, whereas the cells, they're used once and then they're gone. The tissue, after it's been removed, if it's needle biopsy cores, they're placed in a fixative and um, that's usually formalin. And what that is, it just, it's like cooking. It it just stops it breaking down because of bacteria in the environment and warmth and colds and things like that. And then we have to make it suitable for long-term storage and for staining to look at under the microscope. And basically the principle there is we have to take all the water out of it. Tissue is mostly water so we basically have to dry it. We do that by actually replacing the water with alcohol so the cells get drunk first (laughs) and uh, then we replace the alcohol with another solvent which actually can mix with wax and the advantage of that is the wax is hard. So we've got tissue now which is dry and actually has been kind of filled with wax where there was water beforehand and it's gone from being soft and fragile to being hard and robust and and storable and that wax embedded tissue is capable of being sliced very 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 thinly and it's those slices which are are mounted onto the microscope slides and stained. So that's what happens then from the wax embedded tissue we prepare these very thin sections they're stained with a whole variety of different coloured stains, and we have stains that will help characterise the immune type of the cells, and the wax tissue itself, which we don't use up completely, that can be stored for a very long period of time and is available subsequently for later use. And the only difference between what we would do in that regard for the needle biopsy cause and a big piece of tissue, like a whole lymph node, is that to make sure that we can get all the water out and all the wax in for mm-hmm. the bigger piece of tissue, we have to slice it up before we put it in the fixative. And beyond that, it's the same kind of process.
0: All those processes, do they affect the cells at all or
1: are they completely the same once they've had okay, it well, That's well, that- That's another really brilliant question. I can't promise that in between the time that the cells are taken physically from the patient to the time that they first encounter the formalin fixative in the container outside the patient's body, that small changes don't happen. I mean, we we actually know they do, particularly to some of the genetic material. So um, RNA, ribonucleic acid, we know is particularly vulnerable at that stage. So we have to transfer it as quickly as possible. But once the tissue is in the formalin, it's kind of, the formalin is magic. It actually, like, it stops all those processes in their track, and that's why it's called fixative. It's like fixing the tissue at a point in time, mm-hmm. and after that, we don't believe after that that the tissue that the cells change. So the only the problem can sometimes be if there's a delay in getting the cell from the patient into the fixative. We know we then can have some problems down the line, but as long as there's no delay, the fixative does its job. And I've heard a lot about
0: stains. This is something that's, that's come up quite a lot. And are those stains there to try and highlight the unusual cells? Is that what they're there to
1: do? Pretty much so. They highlight both the, the usual and the unusual. And, they're this, and in many ways they're exactly the same stains as we use for a lot of other tissue types as well. So the, these wouldn't just be things that are used in lymphoma. So the basic stain that we do on absolutely everything is called H and E, and the H is a purple dye and that will stain the nucleus and the E is an orangey red dye and that will stain the cytoplasm. And Those are the two major components of every cell type and so we use those to, to make the cells visible. When you have the very very thin sections that we first prepare from the wax tissue, actually it's invisible. It doesn't have any remaining colour of its own. It's it's too thin, there's too little material there. But once you put something like the H and E onto it, actually you're restoring visibility. And then some of the other stains are more specialised, but they're all doing the same thing. They're, They're either picking out everything so that you can see the whole landscape, or as you implied, some stains pick out particular elements that we want to look for. Is it there or isn't it there? How much of it is there? Is it in the right place? Is it in the wrong place? We're looking for things of that sort. And that nicely explains why all the images of cells I see are purple. So you've explained that nicely.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Love
1: pink <laughs> <Duffing> and purple.
0: <laughs> I wondered if you could tell me how long it takes to get the results of a biopsy. Yes, this
1: can vary quite a bit. If you have something like a fine needle aspirate cytology specimen, where you literally have sucked some cells out of a lymph node, spread it on a slide, and been able to look at that with a very simple stain, the result could be available in a matter of minutes. But that's usually not an absolutely definitive result, because to do the next step, which would give you a, a proper diagnosis, you would need to move on to do the immune, immune characterization, the flow cytometry, which probably would take a minimum of, say, half a day, Mm -hmm. So with a really urgent specimen where you've got cells in a liquid form, you can probably get there within half a day if it's really urgent. For the tissue samples that actually need to go through the fixation process, it all takes a bit longer. We can do it fairly rapidly, but I would say the minimum is going to be an 8 to 12 hour process because it's really important to get that fixation it right or other things further down the the process don't work and the fixation requires about eight hours even for a small sample of tissue so again so a minimum there of 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 a a two-day process for something like that The, the other things depend a lot on scheduling in the laboratory so when can you get the immune stains done that are often needed for diagnosis when can you get molecular tests done the more you need to do to make a diagnosis, obviously, the, the longer it's going to take. But the general rule for tissue samples would be the fastest is going to be about two days. And we would expect to report the vast majority of lymph node specimens within five to seven days. And what might affect the time that it takes to get the result? The type of hospital in which the sample was taken might be one very practical thing. The people like myself, the hematopathologists and the specialists on colleges often are working either collaboratively with the big centre or in one of the larger teaching centres and we might be at a distance from the hospital where the biopsy was actually taken and there might be a bit of delay because of transporting the sample. I should say here That's not a delay before fixation, just in case anyone's worried about samples traveling somewhere before they get into fixative. No, no, no. They'll always go into fixative straight away where where the patient is, and then they're transported either in the fixative or, or after being converted into the wax block of tissue. But that can add a bit of delay. Apart from that practicality, The delay really is how complex the diagnostic process needs to be. Some lymphomas are easier to diagnose than others. And if we need to do a lot of sort of immune characterisation with extra stains, or if we're not sure that it's lymphoma at all and we're trying to make a diagnosis between something that basically isn't a blood cancer and is, and that might need some molecular tests, the molecular testing can take up to an extra fortnight sometimes just because of the complexity and scheduling of those kind of tests. So the length of time can be very, very variable, depending on the questions that need to be asked. Can I ask you, what are you looking for in these samples? I mean, that's a very basic level. We're trying to see how does the sample compare with our expectation of what should be there normally. So as a hematopathologist. I'm very familiar with what a normal lymph node should look like and a normal bone marrow and the normal appearances of the other tissues in the body that might sometimes contain lymphoid cells. And I'm looking to see whether what is down the microscope looks like normal or looks different. And then if it's different, how is it different? And that difference is at various different levels. One level is what's happening to individual cells, so that's the fine detail level. At a, another level, it's how those cells organise. That's kind of the architecture of the node, the structure of the node. So that's the kind of more uh, a, a kind of larger scale, even down the microscope um, process. Lymph nodes normally, for example, um, they have a very well defined outer outer edge, a capsule which holds the whole lymph node in. And I'm looking to see is that intact or has something eaten its way through it? A normal lymph node has. An architecture which is made up of little nodules or follicles and I'm looking to see are the follicles there? If they're not there, what's replacing them? Why aren't they there? And if they are there, are they normal or are they follicles but abnormal ones? Because as you'll know, some lymphomas can have follicular pattern. So those are some of the features about architecture. I guess that architecture might also, is quite thinking about Hodgkin lymphoma, you'll be familiar that uh, one type of Hodgkin lymphoma is called nodular sclerosing Hodgkin lymphoma. So we're looking for nodularity, which is like big nodules, big follicles, something that's quite defined, but bigger than normal within the lymph node. And the sclerosing bit means fibrous tissue, which is like scars inside the lymph node. So we're looking for scarring in the lymph node. And just to say something about the, the other side of what we're looking for, we're looking at the cells in fine detail and the main distinction there is are the cells that we're seeing mainly small or mainly large or in between or a mixture or are there exceptionally rare cells like the Reed-Sternberg cells of Hodgkin lymphoma that are distinctive and they shouldn't be there at all and when we see them we're kind of pointed in the right direction for diagnosis but the general rule with cells is small cells tend to be something that's less aggressive more slower growing, and large cells tend to be the lymphomas that are more aggressive, faster growing. And then you'll also be aware in the world of Burkitt lymphoma, there's, there's a very specific histology that's um, associated with that, with cells that, that are they're actually kind of in between large and small, but they, they have what's called a starry sky pattern, where there are actually other cells alongside them. That are very very distinctive that pathologists are well used to spotting, and we look for odd things like that that are really definitive for us for diagnosis.
0: Yeah, and there's um, one type of lymphoma that has owl's eyes. Is that right?
1: The owl's eyes are in. That's absolutely right. They are the the in. They are the nuclei of the Reed Sternberg cell. So a Reed Sternberg cell is one cell with typically two nuclei, and each nucleus looks like an owl's eye. And so in the cell, you have these two owl's eyes. Actually, there are often more than two, but let's not get complicated. And what do they indicate? So that is the classical, absolutely definitive type of cell that we find in Hodgkin lymphoma. In their purest form, we see them at their best in nodular sclerosis, Hodgkin lymphoma. But we do they actually are also present in mixed cellularity, Hodgkin lymphoma, and some other rare types.
0: Now can you tell me what tests you perform on the biopsy sample and what
1: can you tell about the lymphoma by doing that? So I've already described the fact that we stain sections with this H&E stain and that's the stain that we use for this basic assessment of the cell size and appearance and the architecture of the lymph node and that's our kind of bread and butter stain and that tells us between 50% and 90% of what we need to know. But almost always on top of that, we need to do what are called immunostains, which are the way we get this characterization of the immune nature of the cells. So your members will be very well aware of the CD numbers that are banded around in the worlds of lymphoma. And these are things like CD20 and CD3. They're defining surface molecules on B cells and T cells. They're Present normally, but they're present in distinctive patterns in certain types of lymphoma. And so, what we do with almost every lymph node sample we look at is we have a whole panel of different immunostains to look for all those surface molecules, to look for the combination, and we look to see that the right combination is present for the right diagnosis. And if something doesn't match, that will help us question the diagnosis and maybe consider alternatives. Doing all of that usually takes two to four days. With the the combination of the original H&E and this immunostaining panel, we've usually got, I'd say, 90% to 100% of the information we need, and just occasionally we need to go on and do molecular tests on top of that. You don't do that on microscope slides as such. We take material from the wax tissue and send it off to the molecular lab, and they then obtain the DNA from from the cells. And do the tests that are needed for that.
0: Can I ask you, do you look out for any other conditions as well as lymphoma
1: while you're looking at these biopsies? We most certainly do and actually one of the key roles of a hematopathologist is also to be aware that there are other diagnoses that can arise in lymph nodes and it might be that a suspected diagnosis of lymphoma is incorrect and that the patient actually has some other disease causing a lymph node to be enlarged. Or it may be that there are two things wrong and the patient in addition to a lymphoma can have something else going on as well and contributing to a lymph node being enlarged. So the sort of things that we have to be particularly mindful of in addition to lymphomas are metastases from other cancers. So breast cancer, bowel cancer, lung cancer, they spread to lymph nodes too and we need to be aware that that can be present. They look very, very different from lymphoma. So um, if they are present, we can usually diagnose them quite quickly. What's much, much harder sometimes is to rule out something that might be an infection. So one really important infection that we do sometimes come across in lymph nodes is tuberculosis, TB. And that can sometimes be very easy to diagnose and sometimes very difficult. And actually, it can be present in addition to a lymphoma. So that's something that we're very, very alert to. And we have a very good set of, again, stains and other tests that we can do to rule that out. And then there are actually some processes in the body where the immune system, the T and B cells, aren't working correctly, but it's not a lymphoma. Again, some of your members may be familiar with the term autoimmune diseases. Let me just name just, just one of them because they all have long, long, complicated names. But the one we come across most that can cause us problems um, of diagnosis when we're thinking about lymphoma is a disease called systemic lupus erythematosus, SLE. And it's a disease in which your immune system doesn't work right and you get large lymph nodes and they can look quite like lymphoma. And we take a great deal of care to make sure that we... We're on the lookout for that and we don't mistake it for lymphoma because the last thing we want is for someone who doesn't have a lymphoma to end up having treatment when they didn't need it. I wanted to move on
0: to how we can be sure that or how you can be sure that the biopsy findings are correct. Do you look at the sample alone or do you view the scan images and blood tests
1: along with them as well? That's another really important question. So I hope everyone will be very reassured to know that we don't just look at the biopsy samples in isolation. It isn't always feasible to directly see the blood sample or see the imaging pictures, but we always have access to the results so we can read the report that's been written and we can read the numbers that have been produced through the blood tests and so on. And we do match those as we're looking at the sample. The most important bit of information that I need when I'm going to look at a sample, even though I do like and it's very useful to see the imaging and so well, but the most important information is the patient's clinical history and the results of the examination that their doctor um, has made when assessing them. I can't emphasize enough how important that is. And and why am I making such a point? Because historically, request forms coming into the lab often have been quite small, with just this little box for a bit of information about the patient. And it's as if the pathologist doesn't need to know. Mm -hmm. And that's nothing, no fault of the patients at all. But the doctors who actually take the samples, sometimes they're surgeons, who aren't looking after the patients themselves, they're just kindly taking the lymph node on that day on their list, and they don't know much about the patients, so they put query lymphoma. Well, that is not a very helpful clinical history. The most important thing that my colleagues who more directly are actually looking after the patients need to provide for me is, is good history. So with good history, with access to the imaging results, I put the histology bit, the microscopy, in context, and it all matches up and reaches the diagnosis. And if I wasn't doing all of that um, and synthesizing all those different bits of information, actually, I wouldn't be doing my job properly.
0: Are biopsies ever sent elsewhere? And why might you do that?
1: So yes, they are sent elsewhere for a variety of reasons. I would, it's difficult to know what proportion need to be sent elsewhere, maybe 10 to 20%. So quite a high proportion, actually. I guess two main reasons come to mind, plus a couple of other um, more kind of practical procedural things. Firstly, it may be that at one particular hospital where the lymph node is being examined and put through all those processes we've described already, not every test is available that's needed. So I might not have all the immunostains in one hospital and I might need to send some material to another hospital to have extra immunostains done or I might need to send it to another hospital to have some molecular tests done because those tests aren't available everywhere. So that's a practical reason but important. Probably clinically, the most important reason why something would be sent elsewhere would be because the diagnosis is proving difficult and the doctor, the the pathologist, the the me and the the other me's around the country want to have somebody else's opinion. So a second look by somebody else who knows the field and we all have our own kind of network of people we know who are particularly experienced in one type of lymphoma or another type of lymphoma and we tend to send them to people who we think can add value to our interpretation of the sample so we do that and that may involve sending it overseas sometimes because some of the expertise lies in America or in the Far East in in all sorts of other places or over in mainland Europe. We also sometimes send samples to learn, so for educational purposes, so we can share learning from good uh, educational examples or challenging, difficult examples. And we share samples likewise for quality assurance to make sure that if we all see the same thing, we all make the same Mm -hmm. diagnosis. So we aim to kind of quality assure the consistency of our interpretation by sharing samples. Mm -hmm. Those are the main reasons that come to my mind.
0: Yeah. And are results double checked?
1: So, yes, they are. And again, I hope people will be reassured by that. Now, it's not a a kind of mandatory requirement that two separate pathologists, for example, would would report a lymphoma specimen. So usually one, one pathologist makes the diagnosis initially. As a matter of good practice, we don't tend to work entirely on our own. And we have other colleagues around us. And certainly for any case that was difficult, we would ask our colleagues at the time and share the diagnostic process. But in preparation for the um, review of patients at the multidisciplinary team meetings, we would always sit down, And review the diagnosis and make sure we all agreed and adjust the diagnosis if anything came to light at that stage which we weren't happy about so we do double check one another's again consistency and accuracy of diagnosis and the MDT the multidisciplinary team system um, kind of helps give a focus to that happening in a very timely fashion we don't wait we don't prolong the opportunity for a specimen to be reviewed by another pathologist. I was going to ask you if you attend the MDT meetings, but it sounds like that's the case. In any multidisciplinary team for lymphoma, for um, other blood cancers, a pathologist like myself will be a core member of the multidisciplinary team. And usually what happens in, in a big hospital, there will typically be three or more pathologists like me who are hematopathologists. For every MDT meeting that happens at least one of us will be present to discuss and present the pathology findings and again just to highlight how they sit in the context of all the other results and to um, offer any further insights that arise as the as the patient's details are discussed so definitely we attend and we definitely very actively take part in the discussion and I would just like to say here I mean People think that multidisciplinary teams and the meetings they have are maybe very procedural, maybe just about ticking boxes for patients. I can absolutely assure people they are not. And for me as a pathologist, MDTs haven't always been there. They began to appear formally when I was in my early 30s. And I'm now considerably older than that. I've been attending MDT meetings for 25 to 30 years. And they revolutionized my working life. They enables me as a pathologist to stop feeling of myself that I just work in a lab, but to feel I was part of the clinical team. And they have been absolutely fantastic, transformational for the quality of patient care for patients with cancer and enable people like me to really contribute in a way that wasn't ever quite possible before.
0: Mm. And it's a, almost a safety net because it brings together all those other elements. And if the picture all seems to fit together, then that's good. But if, there's, if it doesn't, that, that raises questions and discussion, presumably.
1: Absolutely. And I've seen it you know many, many times in my career. I've seen it work in that way. When they've seen every, everybody pooling their bits of information about a patient, something doesn't sound quite right. And then we all rethink. And that thinking together in the room has been really really valuable.
0: I wanted to go on to talk about some of the challenges for pathologists diagnosing lymphoma and the first question I had was can you always find out the type of lymphoma
1: from the sample? The honest truth is no we can't always but I would say as my kind of flip side to that is even when we can't we can still give very good, useful advice for our oncology colleagues and haematology colleagues to help them decide on what treatment to do. Sometimes we actually don't have enough sample. So sometimes if the samples are small, and that's why I was saying at the beginning, particularly with the needle biopsy specimens and the cytology specimens, if we haven't got very many cells, if we haven't got much tissue, we can't do all the tests that we need to do. And sometimes the sample just is very complex and it doesn't obviously tell us that it is one type of lymphoma rather than another and we're left with a decision where it sits somewhere between the two and we don't have enough information to decide and then we have a discussion again with other colleagues in the MDT discussing Mm -hmm. about whether for that, that particular patient would it be better to make the assumption that it's x or would it be better to make the assumption that it's y given that there's no way we can tell the difference. And so you can see how sometimes it has to, we have to make some pragmatic choices, but that we're still doing something useful, even if we haven't been able to absolutely nail the type of lymphoma. So just coming back to the histology that I mentioned earlier, where I said we were we were able to fundamentally say whether it was something that was made up of small cells or large cells. Now, even if we can't tell the precise type of lymphoma, that's really useful information for the doctors looking after a patient, because basically big cells mean there's something aggressive to treat and little cells mean there's more likely something less aggressive, more indolent, more slow growing to treat. Even if we can get no further than that, we've been helpful.
0: And can you tell any other information from the sample?
1: We touched earlier on the fact that there might be some other disease present in addition. So there's that kind of information that we can give As well as a diagnosis. Sometimes within a particular lymphoma type, what comes to my mind here, just as an example, is mantle cell lymphoma. Within mantle cell lymphoma, some examples are slow growing and less aggressive, and some examples are fast growing and very aggressive. And we can tell, we have ways of telling in a lymph node whether within what we would label as a mantle cell lymphoma, we've got a slow growing type. Or a more aggressive type. So that kind of additional information is also achievable for some types of lymphoma.
0: I know we tell people that there are over 60 different types of lymphoma. You'll be able to tell us how many more, I suspect. But with so many different types, it must be really difficult to confirm the exact type of lymphoma. Is that the case? And is that becoming more and more difficult as there are more and more types and it's becoming
1: pared down even more? Another really interesting question. So I would say most of the common forms of lymphoma are in the end reasonably straightforward to diagnose, and we can get a definitive diagnosis. And although the number dip- although classification is changing and the and the number of different types of lymphoma is increasing, what's driving the, the splitting is increased molecular knowledge. And because each subtype that's emerging is basically defined by some molecular characteristic or immunostaining characteristic. If we've got the test available, we can make the diagnosis because the test defines the diagnosis. So it's getting more complicated as a process, maybe, to get to the end point because we can do so much more with each sample. But I'm not sure that in terms of the diagnostic skill of looking at the tissue as a hematopathologist and sort of setting in train the right set of investigations, I think we're still doing the same sort of job as we have been doing for the last few years.
0: Can you tell the history of what's happened for example, the order that things have occurred
1: or how long maybe the lymphoma has been present? There's only a limited amount of kind of historical or time related information that we can gain from a lymph node. There are some very specific examples. Say we've got a, a sample of a lymph node and most of it is diffuse large B cell lymphoma very common type of lymphoma, and and you will be aware that quite a lot of those arise originally from follicular lymphoma. If we have a lymph node and it's mostly occupied by diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and we can see a small amount of follicular lymphoma alongside it, we know that that follicular lymphoma was the starting point that was kind of preclinical, almost it wasn't detected, and it's gone on to cause the large B-cell lymphoma. So we can see sequences like that. And then just occasionally we can see in a lymph node, which is mostly not lymphoma at all, but maybe just reactive. We can see a little bit of lymphoma developing and we know that we've got the early stage of something happening there. So we can get a little bit of that kind of historical information. And we've learned some associations between nodular lymphocyte predominant Hodgkin lymphoma having an association, sometimes again, with a particular type of large B-cell lymphoma, and that's come about through people being able to see the two together more than coincidentally in um, a number of samples over a long period of time, and gradually working out that the nodular lymphocyte predominant disease came first. In the research sphere, there's a lot more work of that sort done, whereby you can tell that It started as A, went to B, went to C, went to D, branched off into E halfway along, things like that.
0: Are there instances where you need to ask for another sample?
1: Sadly, yes, because that always means that the patient is going to have to go through another procedure, however non-invasive, and that is always regrettable. We aim always to have a a definitive sample first time round. Sometimes the, the first sample just isn't enough and we need to go back for more. And that can be that actually the the lymph node was at a difficult site, and so however hard somebody tried to get a sample, they weren't able to get very much tissue at all. Sometimes we need to ask for another sample, even though the first sample was a good one, because what we saw down the microscope was exceptionally complex, and we can get part way to a diagnosis, but we don't feel we can get to a definitive diagnosis, but we think we could if we had more tissue. And the typical example there would be, we maybe had a cytology fine needle aspirate sample to start with, or uh, a needle biopsy call. And we think if we had the whole lymph node with more architecture, with more to look at, we could make a diagnosis. And so that's the commonest reason to ask for more. And then in a kind of different context, we sometimes do need samples that follow up. If our oncology or hematology colleagues are concerned that uh, new lymph nodes are enlarging in a patient who's gone through treatment, so they might be relapsing. You might need to have another sample taken to confirm relapse. It can be that, say, a lymph node in the neck has been sampled and has shown a follicular lymphoma, so something that looks less aggressive, and yet the imaging suggests that deep inside the abdomen, the patient has another lymph node that seems to be growing quickly, that might imply that the deeper lymph node has disease that is more advanced. And so the follicular lymphoma, which is present in the neck, deeper in the body, has transformed into, for example, diffuse large B-Cell lymphoma. And then we want to biopsy the deep node because we need to prove that, that the aggressive lymphoma is there as well. And is so, that fairly rare
0: to find that sort of presentation?
1: Yes, fairly rare. That, that may be a, a slightly shifting story because. Fantastic imaging like PET scanning that shows the metabolic activity uh, of lymph nodes is actually sometimes now revealing lymph nodes deep in the body that look more metabolically active than we would like. Mm. In situations where without the PET scan in historic times, you might have just thought, oh, there's another lymph node deep inside the body Mm. and have just made the assumption if it wasn't obviously behaving very differently to lymph nodes more superficially, that there was no difference in the disease process there. But sometimes a positive PET scan might be an indication too, and so maybe it's not quite such a rare thing as we have thought in the past.
0: You mentioned earlier that uh, you know the work on the tissue was because you kept them forever. And what happens once the tissue has been tested and you have the
1: results? Most important thing is that the the results have to get to the right place. That's the most important thing because the information needs to get to the clinicians and the patients where it can be used to guide treatment. So that's absolutely our first priority. But in the laboratory, we then have some tissue left in its hard block of wax, which potentially will last forever. And we do keep that. We're obliged by law to keep it for 30 years. Mm -hmm. Um, because that's in line with keeping patients' medical records. And so we we honour that. It's also, with the patient's permission, made available if appropriate for research studies or can can be made available for research studies and for teaching uh, for quality control purposes in the laboratory. But from the patient's point of view, I think that potential for research to kind of make things better for lymphoma in future is one really important thing to bear in mind about why we keep the tissue. The other thing is that increasingly patients are living with and beyond their lymphoma and it can be really really helpful to have the original diagnostic material still in the file to compare with something that might happen to that patient later in their life. Whether it is um, a relapse of their lymphoma or the development of some new pathology that might or might not be lymphoma. We want to compare and contrast and to learn again these associations between something happening at one point in a patient's life and then something happening later on. Are they associated? Are they not associated? And because we keep the tissue both directly for the patient's benefit themselves and for research for the benefit of all patients, we can look back at the original tissue because we store it in that way.
0: Coming back to, we talked about staging earlier on, and I thought I'd return to it, and also why some people have a bone marrow biopsy and others don't. So um,
1: staging, um, of course, is about assessing how far a lymphoma has spread, and that can be the, the number of lymph nodes involved, the sites in the body, how many different sites of the body are involved, how far from the starting site something has spread. In assessing how far. Uh, lymphoma has spread. Bone marrow biopsy can be important but isn't always needed. Uh, I mentioned very briefly in terms of the type of sample that usually a sample is taken of bone marrow from the hip bones and the test that's being done on that is to try to assess is there lymphoma present or not present and then we might ask some more questions which I'll come back to. But the first question is is it involved or is is it not involved? Uh, is crucial because bone marrow involvement defines the disease as stage four. And you'll be aware that staging broadly falls into uh, four groups. And stage four is the most widespread, the most advanced, and therefore has implications for treatment. And the reason that bone marrow involvement equates with stage four is because by the time the lymphoma has spread into the bone marrow, it has to have been able to circulate through the bloodstream, which means it's disseminated, it's spread through the whole body. So you might ask, why isn't that tested every time? Well, some types of lymphoma we know only very, very rarely spread beyond one lymph node or an immediately adjacent group of lymph nodes. And it's quite a procedure for a patient to go through. It's uncomfortable to have done. I have had it done myself. And so we don't want to subject any patient to a procedure that's unnecessary. So for the types of lymphoma which are known not to spread, we don't tend to do bone marrow sampling. An example of that would be one of the marginal zone lymphomas of malt type, for example, a a gastric, a stomach malt type lymphoma. We know they don't spread far usually. And so we wouldn't typically examine a patient's bone marrow. Another example might be some of the low grade lymphomas that arise in the skin. We know they tend to stay put in the skin and so we wouldn't sample bone marrow for that. For diseases like follicular lymphoma, diffuse large B cell lymphoma, mantle cell lymphoma, they have a very high tendency to spread quite widely and therefore if we don't already know that they're stage four, which can be established by some of the other investigations. Sometimes the imaging studies prove it already. Sometimes the circulating cells in the blood will already have proved it. If we don't yet have evidence that the patient is stage four, in those patients where we know the lymphoma has a high chance of spreading, we would do a bone marrow sample to see if the bone marrow is involved. And then for me as a pathologist, I'm saying, is it there or isn't it there? If it is there, how much? Because that bulk of disease in the bone marrow can have some bearing on treatment. And most importantly, is it the same in the bone marrow as it is in the lymph node or the other samples you have? And that's a bit like what I was saying earlier about sometimes what might be happening in a superficial lymph node near the skin might be different from what's going on deeply and you can have a situation where you've got a low grade lymphoma in your lymph node but in the bone marrow it's gone high grade. Much more commonly, actually it's the other way around, you have a diffuse large b cell lymphoma in your lymph node sample and then when you do your staging investigation and do the bone marrow sample, you find follicular lymphoma in the bone marrow and it still looks low grade in the bone marrow Actually, that's quite good news for the patient because they haven't got high-grade disease at stage four, but because the spread to the bone marrow is low-grade, it's telling you that that high-grade lymphoma almost certainly came from the low-grade lymphoma, but the high-grade lymphoma hasn't yet made it back to the bone marrow. Mm -hmm. And so the the answers can be quite complicated. We, We also are quite selective about who has a bone marrow biopsy in the staging of Hodgkin lymphoma, That's a slightly different story, and it's mainly a different story because we now have PET scanning. We used to do bone marrow biopsy to stage most patients with Hodgkin lymphoma, but now with PET scanning, the need is almost gone because the sensitivity of PET scanning for detecting the spread of Hodgkin lymphoma is exquisite. So I'm pleased to say far fewer patients with Hodgkin lymphoma now have to have a bone marrow biopsy for staging purposes.
0: Staging for lymphoma is very different to other cancers like solid tumour cancers, where a stage four is still very treatable, isn't it,
1: Bridget? Absolutely. It's really important because it's much more about pointing towards a different chemotherapy regime rather than maybe predominantly a radiotherapy treatment supplemented by chemotherapy. It's not about being limited for treatment options.
0: Bridget, you're a consultant hematopathologist, but how did you move into that role? What training did you need? and is it something you
1: would always wanted to do? I think I learned that I wanted to be a pathologist quite early on, and maybe I'm a bit unusual in that regard. so um, I started off going to medical school. I think I was interested somehow in being a cancer doctor at, at that stage um, didn't really have any idea about what that might be like, and in the first year. Um, part of what you learn is anatomy and also um, some histology looking at tissues down a microscope I was absolutely fascinated by looking down tissue at tissue down the microscope and I thought I can remember thinking at the time oh I wish there were doctors that did this but I had no idea there were so I kind of parked that thought and, and carried on and then in the middle of medical training in year three You usually learn all the bits of pathology, chemical pathology, hematology, microbiology and histopathology, tissue pathology, as a kind of block together in one part of the year. When we were doing that, I suddenly realised that we were being taught by doctors who spent their days looking at tissue down a microscope. And I thought, wow, I want to be one of those. So from year three onwards, I knew I wanted to be a tissue pathologist, a histopathologist. And I'd done some immunology um, to understand um, B cells and T cells and antibodies and so on. And so I think the combination of um, histopathology and an interest in immunology brought me into the world of kind of lymphoma and hematopathology. And so that's what kind of got me going. I think my motivation for staying with it and developing the interest throughout the rest of my career became much more about understanding lymphomas and the implication of lymphoma and its treatment for patients. The science has always been a really strong parallel interest for me. I've really loved being able to learn about what to do to help patients with lymphoma.
0: And what would you have done if you'd not become a pathologist, do you
1: think? Oh gosh, what an interesting question. I think um, something scientific, almost certainly, and of course I've, I've reflected on parallel careers that might have been during the course of my own. Two strong strands emerge. One is that in the laboratory, the people that I work with most, in a similar way to the way doctors on the ward work with a nursing team, In the laboratory, I work with a team of biomedical scientists who are very specialised in all the processes, for example, all about the fixation of tissues and the staining and the sectioning and so on, and the immunophenotyping and the molecular testing and so on. And I think a career as a biomedical scientist would be kind of absolutely fascinating and and very rewarding and and is a very valuable profession within the health service. And then the other thing that I might have done instead of medicine and pathology would have been to go into medical genetics. There's been so much advance in our understanding of DNA and RNA and molecular genetics over the last 20 to 30 years. And geneticists now make a huge contribution in medicine in general. And I think particularly cancer genetics, again, another territory for a really, really fascinating career for people. That's also really, really valuable within the healthcare context. I've got a couple more questions that
0: we like to ask healthcare professionals. What motivates you to do your job, Bridget?
1: Oh, that's a lovely question. Through my training as a doctor and then as a, a, a laboratory doctor specialising in, in lymphomas and blood cancers, I have come to really, really care about patients with lymphoma and other blood cancers and I want them to have the absolutely the best treatment that they can have. And I know that the right diagnosis is the key starting point for treatment being put in place. So it's absolutely my mission to provide the best possible diagnosis for lymphoma patients and other blood cancer patients so that they can get the best treatment possible. So it's, it's, that, it's working in that diagnostic sphere helping to guide the treatment for patients that is really my driver. And in the background, I've always been really, really fascinated by our immune system, how B cells work, how T cells work, how they work in health and how they go wrong in disease. And so scientifically, I always have questions about that in my mind, which fascinate me still. So I've had a fascinating career and I hope being able to be very useful to patients. My one message for patients is that the the right diagnosis for you is my professional job. You don't have to be interested in it at all. I'll be interested in it for you. But if you are interested in your diagnosis, I'll do absolutely everything possible to help explain to you, show you, share with you what we've done, because it's your tissue, it's your diagnosis. And anything I can do that helps make you going through what you will have to go through to, to help you on that journey, I will do that.
0: That's been a brilliant conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And what a fascinating topic. I can see why, uh, why you find your job so rewarding. It's been
1: wonderful. Thank you very much, Bridget, for your time. Well, and um, thank you for the opportunity to uh, actually have a have a, a voice that um, some patients and carers will hear from the world of laboratory medicine.
0: For more information about lymphoma and the support we can offer to people affected by the condition, please visit the Lymphoma Action website at www.lymphoma-action.org.uk. Lymphoma Action, inform, support, connect.